Hey, as we continue to give and before we dive into the message, I just wanted to mention one other thing quickly. Uh, this is the time of year when we seem to run out of seats the fastest. Uh, there's a lot of people who are, are showing up to church for the first time or the first time in a long time, and, uh, and we love that, and it's awesome. But we always have to be really mindful of the room and how many seats are available this time of year, probably more than any other time of year. Uh, last Sunday, we had 957 adults in this room over the course of our four gatherings. And here's what's even crazier. 645 of them showed up at either 10 or 11.30. And so we were beyond capacity in both gatherings. It's looking like that might be the case again today. And so a couple things I want to ask you to do, all right? In the coming weeks, would you commit to pray for our future relocation? Uh, we did a big initiative in the fall to raise money to relocate. And I'll go ahead and tell you that we are actively pursuing relocation opportunities right now. And I am hoping to have some really good news for you in, uh, in the coming weeks. So be praying about that because God knows we need room for uh, people who aren't with us yet. But the second thing I want to ask you is this. Um, and, and please hear me. If you're a guest or you're new to our church, this is not for you. This is just for people who would say, Cross Point's my church. I'm in. I'm committed. Listen, if this is your church, would you consider coming at either 8.30 or 5 o'clock, just for the next little while to help us make room now as we're praying and waiting on where we're going to be in the future. Uh, if you can wake up earlier and come, you'll help free seats up. If you can sleep in and do what you want all day and they come at 5, that'll help to create seats. Uh, I do realize that some of you can't do that because of schedule or where you serve, and so um, come to church when you can come to church. We don't want you to miss out, but if it works with your schedule and you can make it work, I would just ask you, 8.30, 5 o'clock, that would be awesome, all right? So consider that, think about that, and uh, if you do that, we'll give you a prize. Not, not really. Um, you can just take joy in the fact that you gave up your seat for somebody, okay? Awesome. Let's do this. If you have a Bible or a device with some kind of app on it, grab those things. Go to James chapter 1 with me. James chapter 1. We're in week 2 of a series on the book of James talking about the relationship between faith and and works. James chapter 1, uh, we're going to hang out in verses 19 through 25. Listen, as you're getting there, let me ask you this. You ever been around a know-it-all? Some of you laugh. Don't look at anybody, all right? Just keep it, keep it locked up here. You ever been around a person like that? You know the kind of person I'm talking about, right? That person that's always there to correct, cr to criticize, to add their own commentary to whatever conversation's taking place. I had a good friend like this in college. He was one of my best buddies. But anytime a conversation about anything arose, he was waiting in the wings to jump in, to offer his vast knowledge on the subject. And, and I loved my friend, but oftentimes when he'd speak up, he would completely shut the conversation down. Listen, you know this like I know this. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who are like this concerning spiritual things. They're spiritual know-it-alls, if you will. Anytime a spiritual conversation arises, they're there, and they're offering correction, criticism. Uh, they're there adding their own personal commentary. And here's what's tough to get your head around. A lot of times these people know a lot about the Bible, and what they're saying is actually true. Yet the way they communicate what they know to be true completely shuts conversations down. Look, these know-it-all people give us a picture of what we're going to learn from our passage today, which is this. That while it is highly, highly important to know this book, what's even more important is doing what it says. 
Listen, you can know this book cover to cover, but if you fail to do what it says, I promise you, it will prove meaningless in your life. So with that in mind, let's dive in. James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Here we go. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So right out of the gate, James gives us some simple wisdom in regards to our ears, our mouths, and our emotions. Here's what he says. He said that we, as followers of Jesus, we should be quick to hear. In other words, he's saying that we should always be in a hurry to listen. We should be slow to speak, and we should be slow to anger. So here's a question for you. How are you doing with those things? How are you doing in those three areas of life? Are, are you getting it right? Or are you the person who is slow to hear? Right? Like, are you the type of person who, uh, you know, listening for you is not really about listening. It's about waiting your turn to talk. Can I just tell you, that devalues people. Like, if you're that person who uh, is listening but not really listening but just waiting to speak and, and take your turn, here's what you're saying. You're saying to that person who's speaking that what they're saying isn't as important as what you need to say and that while you're unwilling to listen to them, they need to listen to you. That's one of the quickest ways to shut down a conversation by being slow to hear. Uh, secondly, are you that person that's quick to speak? Like, you know if this is you, right? You're always popping off at the mouth. You're talking before you think. Uh, you don't really weigh out how your words might impact other people or portray Jesus. You just, you just kind of go for it. And finally, are you the person that's quick to anger? Like, are you someone who loses it in the car while you're stuck in traffic, right? You're yelling at other drivers. You're yelling at stoplights. Am I the only one this happens to at times? Like, you guys better than me? I don't know. Are you the person who uh, starts petty arguments at home with your kids, with your spouse? Do you yell at the TV while you're watching the game? Do you oftentimes get frustrated with that waiter or waitress because they're not moving quick enough for you? Do, do you get angry quickly? Can we be honest? We get angry about some silly, selfish things, don't we? We do. All of us do. It's insane to think that and you and I, we could get angry uh, about something as small as, as a driver who isn't going quickly enough for us, but it happens all the time on a daily basis in some of our lives. Have you ever considered why? Like, have you ever stopped and just saw, why do I get angry about that thing? You see, I think it's oftentimes a result of us doing the opposite of what James teaches in this passage. Instead of us being quick to hear and slow to speak, most of the time, if, if you're anything like me at times, uh, you are are, are slow to hear, quick to speak. And what happens when you do that is this, you are operating in pride and self-centeredness. And you know, like I know, when a person is, is stuck in pride and self-centeredness, always talking, never listening, that leads to a lot of assumptions. And in many cases, those assumptions then lead to anger. Now here's the bad news about anger. James tells us that it does not produce righteousness. It doesn't produce righteousness in your life, Right, so in other words, your anger does nothing to make you more like Jesus. And I'll give a quick disclaimer for those that are thinking it. Look, I know Jesus got angry. John 2, Matthew 21, Jesus got angry. He walked into the temple and he found the religious leaders of his day uh, taking advantage of people who were there to make sacrifices for their sins. And so Jesus, in his anger, he flips over their tables 
and he drives them out of the temple with a whip. It's what we call righteous anger. Jesus wasn't acting foolishly. He wasn't acting selfishly. He wasn't stuck in pride or self-centeredness. You see, Jesus got angry that God was being dishonored and that people God loved were being hurt. Now, again, can we be honest? 99% of the time, that's not why we get angry, right? Most of the time we get angry, we're not angry because God's being dishonored and, and people that he loves are being hurt. We're getting angry because we feel dishonored or we feel hurt. Again, what James is saying is this. That kind of self-centered, prideful anger does nothing to make you like Jesus. It doesn't produce righteousness in your life. But there's a second part. Do you know that your, your uh, anger, excuse me, your anger does nothing to produce righteousness in the lives of others either? Right? In other words, you getting angry will never change anybody else's heart. And I'll make it really practical, all right? Uh, do you know that your angry Facebook rant won't ever change a person's life? You know that? Rant all you want about political issues, about social issues. And I guarantee you, nobody's ever going to call you and go, oh my gosh, I just read your post. You sounded so angry. Tell me more, right? I want to turn my life around. I want to change the way I think and live. It's never going to happen. I'll give you another example. Do you know that your anger toward your friends or your family members who can't seem to get life together but refuse to turn to Jesus, it's never going to change them? You can argue with them all you want. Beat them over the head with your Bible. Every time you see them, tell them they're wrong. They need to get their act together. And they're going to remain stuck right where they are. And why? Because you can't argue people into a relationship with Jesus. Your anger, again, will never change another person's heart. Jesus changes hearts. And if you want people to see Jesus in and through you, that requires you to share the truth in a loving, grace-filled manner. And to do that, don't miss it, to do that, you have to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So how in the world do we pull that off? Well, James tells us right here in what we just read. Look back at verse 21. He tells us first to put away all filthiness and all wickedness. This is a picture of somebody stripping off dirty, filthy clothes out of a desire to be clean. James is telling us that we should desire the same thing when it comes to sin and evil in our lives. We should desire to take those things off and to be clean or to be righteous. And then the second thing he says is this, that we need to receive the word. Now, the order in which James places these statements, it's really, really important. Again, don't miss it. He says, take off or put away all filthiness and then receive the word. He's reminding us that a desire to break free from sin and evil in our lives oftentimes precedes an interest in the Word of God. I, I would bet that's why some of us are in church today. Like something in our life is broken. Something needs to change. Something needs to be fixed. Maybe your New Year's resolution was this. I want to stop living life the way I've been living it, and so I'm going to find a church to go to. And I'm going to show up, and I'm going to hope to hear something or experience something that might lead to life change. Look, if that's you, I just want to say, man, I am so glad you're here and there's good news. According to what we're reading today, James says that you can find the restoration and the freedom you're looking for if, in fact, you will receive the word of God correctly. And so how do you do that? Well, he tells us that to receive the word of God correctly, you have to receive it with meekness. Another word for meekness is humility, right? The idea is simply this, that anytime this book is taught or anytime you read it, that you would uh, hear it. Uh, receive it in a submissive, teachable manner. 
And I'll give you a couple questions that I think will help you with this, all right? Anytime you hear the Bible taught or you read it for yourself, ask yourself these two questions. Do I believe God is smarter than me? Do I believe God wants the best for me? Do I believe God's smarter than me? Do I believe God wants the best for me? If your answer to these questions is a resounding yes, I'll tell you, look, it's going to be easy for you to receive the word of God in meekness or with humility. Like if you're the person that would say, you know what, yeah, God, he's the one who set the universe in motion, not me. God's existed throughout eternity, not me. God's the creator and sustainer of all life, not me. God is the giver of life, knows best how life is supposed to work, not me. Yes, I believe that God in his great love for me sacrificed his son Jesus on a cross so that I could be loved and accepted into his family. And as we learned last week, yeah, I believe that God's the giver of all the good and perfect gifts that I enjoy in life. When life is good, God did it. If you believe those things, again, every time you hear this book taught or any time you read it for yourself, it's going to be easy to submit yourself to its teachings. But if you're the person that looks at these questions and you go, nah, I'm smarter. No, I don't think God wants the best for me. I think God's kind of out to get me. Then it's going to be impossible for you to receive the teaching of God's word correctly. And if you fail to receive it correctly, you will miss out on the benefit of doing so. But what's the benefit? Well, here it is. We, we saw it in verse 21. James says that the benefit of receiving the word correctly is this. You receive a word that is able to save your souls. Think about it like this, if you will. A farmer goes out into his field and he he takes some seeds with him, and he plants the seeds in the ground. Why does he do that? Well, he plants the seeds to bring forth life, right? It's a pretty simple concept. James is telling us here that God wants to plant his word in our hearts and our souls for that same purpose. It's why he refers to it as the implanted word. God's desire is to use this book first to bring us to a saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ, and then he wants to continue to use this book in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus until we finally leave this earth one day and go to be with Jesus and we see him face to face. That's the benefit of receiving the word correctly. It's able to save our souls. And why does God want to do that? Well, it's because he's a good father. It's because he loves us. It's because he's a God who wants the best for us. And because he's smarter than us, he knows what leads to life. And he wants to plant the pathway that leads to life in our hearts, and in our souls. Isn't that awesome? Now look, keep reading with me, if you will, because there's kind of a catch to all this. All right, verse 22. James goes on, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James, he's teaching what I said at the very beginning of this message, that while knowing this book is important, doing it is more important. You see, it's our doing that proves we have actually received the word. Do you want to know if uh, you've received the word or not? Are you doing it? That's the question you need to ask. We can all know whether or not you've truly accepted the word of God correctly by watching your life, whether or not you obey him. If you're taking notes, here's something to write down. Obedience to the word follows acceptance of the word. Obedience to the word follows acceptance of the word. Listen, with this truth in mind, here's a question that I want all of us to answer for ourselves. All right, ready? 
What have you heard that you haven't done? What have you heard that you haven't done? For example, maybe you're the person in the room who would say, well, James, I've, I've heard that I shouldn't complain. Right? Philippians 2.14 tells us this. Do everything. And that word everything really means everything. Do everything without arguing or complaining. James, I've heard that I shouldn't be argumentative, that I shouldn't complain, but maybe you're the person who still complains all the time. Or, or maybe you're this person. James, I've heard I shouldn't gossip. Right? The Bible teaches consistently, constantly against gossip, against slander. Maybe you're the person who would say, James, I've heard I shouldn't do that, but you still gossip and talk about people like it's your job. Or maybe you're the person in the room who would say, James, you know what, I've, I've heard I should give. I've heard countless times that the Bible teaches that I'm a steward or a manager, that God, he's the owner of all things, that he's given me a portion of his stuff so that I can enjoy some and then invest a portion back into his kingdom and in his church. Maybe you've heard that, but you still don't give. Or, or what about this? What about this? Maybe you're the man in the room who would say, James, I've heard that as a husband, I should love my wife like Jesus loves his church. I should sacrifice for her, empathize with her. I should be the first to forgive in our relationship. I should put her needs before my own. But maybe you're the guy who would say, I've, I've heard it, but I'm not doing it. I'm still selfish. I'm still self-centered. I put myself first. Maybe you're the guy in the room whose love for your wife is highly conditional. Or ladies, maybe you've heard that you should be a wife who honors and respects your husband in all situations. That you should follow him as the leader of your marriage and of your household. Yet maybe you're the wife in the room who still disrespects and dishonors your husband. You speak poorly to him. You speak poorly about him. And you strive to be in control of your relationship every chance you get. Listen, I don't know what it is for you, what you've heard but haven't yet done. But James tells us whatever that thing is for you, if you're hearing about it and not doing it, you're deceiving yourself. Like you are believing the lie that you can still experience joy and satisfaction in that area of your life, even if you fail to walk in obedience to the word of God. And James gives us an amazing illustration to make his point. He says, people who hear the word but don't do the word, they're like a man who would look into a mirror and then walk away and immediately forget what he looked like. So imagine yourself in that scenario. Like imagine you crawl out of bed tomorrow morning and uh, you start to get ready for work or school, and you look into the mirror, and you see that your hair's a mess, you have bags under your eyes, you know, ladies, half your face is still on your pillow, just makeup everywhere. Uh, you, you walk in, and, and you see bumps and, and blemishes, uh, food stuck in your teeth from last night's dinner. You know, there's all this stuff that needs to be fixed and corrected before you walk out the door, but let's just imagine you walk away from the mirror to go eat your breakfast and you forget immediately what you saw. James says that's a picture of who you are when you hear the word but don't do the word. I need you to understand today this book that I hold in my hand, it's like a spiritual mirror. Anytime you read it, anytime you hear it taught, it's like God is holding it up in front of you going, see? Do you see it? I want to show you what's broken. I want to show you what's disheveled. I want to show you what is still in need of repair. But what you can't do is just look into this spiritual mirror. If you want anything to change in your life, you have to do what it says. This is what James goes on to tell us in verse 25 that we read a moment ago. He says that it's our doing, not our hearing, it's our doing that leads to two things. The first is freedom. The first is freedom. He calls the word of God the law of liberty. I love this. 
He's reminding us that when we obey God's word, we don't lose freedom, we actually gain it. I'll give you an illustration that I've used in the past to make this point, and uh, it was a long time ago. It's refreshed because I have a new baby in the house, so this will be new for some of us. Look, I got a 10-month-old at home. Her name is Selah, and she's awesome. She is into everything, way more than her older sister ever was. She's crawling. She's close to walking. Uh, she's opening all the cabinets, trying to climb the stairs, messing with all the light sockets. So because I love my daughter, here's what I've done. Uh, put a baby gate up at the bottom of the steps. Put locks on all the cabinets. We, we just bought a lock two days ago to go on the, the uh, drawer underneath the oven because she just can't leave that one alone. We put wall coverings on all the sockets so that she wouldn't get her little baby fingers in there. I guarantee you right now, nobody in the room is thinking this. James, what an awful dad. I cannot believe that you would limit your daughter's freedom in that way. Right, if she wants to climb the stairs, let her climb the stairs. What's the worst that can happen, right? If she wants to put her little fingers in the wall socket, I mean, I mean, let her do it. It's, it's her life. She should be able to do what she wants. If she wants to drink the stuff under the counter, I mean, let her go for it. Nobody's thinking that. Instead, what you're thinking is this. Wow, James, you sound like a loving and responsible father. And I appreciate that. I'll take that encouragement all day long, right? I, I try my best. But look, because I love my daughter, I have put boundaries up for her. Not to limit her freedom, but to ensure that she remains free from things that could destroy and wreck her life. Are you with me? That's why God has given us his commands. God isn't trying to steal from us. He isn't trying to rob from us. He's not trying to limit our freedom. He's trying to ensure that we remain free from things that could wreck and destroy our lives so that we can know life in the way that it was meant to be. Secondly, James tells us that it's our doing. Again, not our hearing, but our doing that leads to blessing. So in other words, when we do what God has asked us to do, he blesses us for it. Now, I know that for some of us that might sound a little legalistic, right? And if you're new to church and, and the Bible and you have no idea what legalism is, here's a quick definition, all right? Legalism says that you and I must earn the love and acceptance of God through our obedience. That's not what James is teaching here. All right, James is teaching what the rest of the Bible teaches, that you and I, we're loved by God because of what Jesus has done for us. This is why in verse 19, he calls us beloved brothers. He wants us to be reminded God loves you, not because of you or what you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done on your behalf. He wants us to know that we're loved by God and that if we truly love God, obedience should follow our love. And when we obey God, well, that leads ultimately to blessing. I've been trying to teach my, my oldest daughter, she's four and a half, her name is Rowan, about the relationship between love, obedience, and blessing. And she forgets about it all the time, so I'm teaching her constantly, but, but here's how it, it works in my house. Whenever I ask her to do something, and she whines or complains, she acts like she doesn't want to do it, oftentimes I'll say to her, Rowan, do you love your daddy? Parents, drop that line on your kids. It's awesome. All right, just to watch their face. Do you love your daddy? And Rowan will say back to me, yes, daddy, I love you. And then I'll say to her, okay, Rowan, I need you to understand, the only way that I know whether or not you love me is if you obey me and do what I say. And then she'll obey. And then her obedience, you know this if you're a parent, her obedience leads to blessing in her life. You see, because she obeyed me, she gets to avoid discipline. If I've asked her not to do something that could harm her or hurt her, like, you know, taking a nosedive off the back of the couch, 
happens at times in our house, then she has saved herself the pain associated with disobedience. Her love for me leads to obedience, and her obedience leads to great blessing in her life. Listen, it's the same with us and God. James is teaching us here that if we truly love God, we will obey God. And that's taught all throughout the scriptures. I mean, Jesus himself hammered on this. In John 15, 14, he said it like this. He said, you are my friends if you keep my word. John 14, 23 through 24, he put it this way. Whoever loves me keeps my word. Whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my word. One of his disciples, John, in the book of 1 John, uh, verses 2, uh, I'm cha- sorry, chapter 2, verse 4, said this. If anyone says, I know him, but doesn't follow his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. The Bible tells us plainly, if we love God, we're going to obey God. And guys, when we obey God, that's ultimately where blessing is found. So think back with me, if you will, to that thing that you've heard but you haven't done. Do you have it in your mind? You have it? What have you heard but you haven't done? Do you want God to bless that area of your life? Here's what you do. Obey God. Do what he's asked you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Treat people the way he's asked you to treat people. Quit complaining, quit gossiping, quit slandering. Start giving. Be the husband or wife that he's called you to be. If you love God, obey God. And as James says, you will be blessed in your doing. I want you to go back to the passage with me one last time. We're going to finish reading uh, verses 26 and 27. And after we do this, we're going to be done. Check it out. James goes on. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in these final two verses, James, he gives us three characteristics of people who do the word. Let me show them to you. Here's what he says. That obedient people, they're marked by three things. A bridled tongue, care for the oppressed, and they remain unstained from the world. So let's talk about this. All right, first, a bridled tongue. James says that a person who claims to be religious, or in other words, devoted to God, yet doesn't bridle or restrain their tongue, actually deceives their heart and their religion or or so-called devotion, it's actually worthless. When I read that this past week, my mind immediately went to Luke 6.45. In this passage, Jesus says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in other words, he's teaching us there that our words reflect the condition of our hearts. You see, if anybody wants to know whether or not you're truly devoted to God, here's all we need to do. We need to be a fly on a wall in your house for about an hour, and then we'll know. We'll just listen to you talk. And your words will ultimately reflect... Uh, your devotion to God. You see, if you complain, if you're critical, if you're negative, if you lie, if you slander, if you gossip, if your, ho- if your tone is always harsh, you might say that you're devoted to God, but according to James, your unbridled tongue says something different. You see, obedient people are people who watch their mouths. That might be something to write down. Obedient people are people who watch their mouths. But, but here's the key. Don't miss it. Look, look. If you're going to watch your mouth, you first have to guard your heart. <laughs> That's that's where it starts. The second characteristic is this, care for the oppressed. Care for the oppressed. During Jesus' day and James' day, widows and orphans were among the most oppressed and least cared for people in society. In many parts of the world, that's still true today. That's why guys like Mike Rittering that I told you about earlier went to Burkina Faso back in 2011. He and his wife ran an orphanage there. 
uh, and they cared for orphans, and they also cared for widows. They gave up their lives to serve oppressed people. But that's not a call just for people who travel across the world, right? That's a call for all of us as followers of Jesus. James reminds us here that obedient people are compassionate people. Not people who just say, oh, yeah, yeah, I care for the oppressed, but they're those people who can actually tell you how they are caring for the oppressed. Right, James, he gave us a great picture, I'm sorry, Jesus gave us a great picture of this in Matthew uh, chapter 25. He says that as his followers, we should be feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting those sick and in prison. We should be the people inviting the strangers in. And so my question is this, uh, are you a person who does those things? Like, are you a person who doesn't just say, oh yeah, yeah I care for hurting people, oppressed people? How does that care look in your life? Obedient people are compassionate people. And then finally, James tells us that obedient people remain unstained from the world. Now, please know that that this is not a call to remove yourself from the world completely, like some Christians attempt to do. James isn't saying here, hey, hide out in church buildings for the rest of your life and stay safe from the big bad world out there. No, Jesus called us as his followers to go into the world. And to share hope and the good news of what he's done for sinful people with people who need what he has to offer. The goal is this, when we go into that world to share the good news of Jesus, that we remain unstained. That we avoid being influenced by worldly thinking, worldly living, and we remain committed to the life Jesus has called us to. So, look, with these three characteristics in mind, here's a question for you. Do these characteristics define your life? Is your tongue bridled? Is it restrained? Are you watching your mouth? Are you guarding your heart? Are you a person who truly cares for the oppressed? Doesn't doesn't just talk about how how much you care, but, but can tell us how you care. And then finally, are you someone who remains unstained from the world? Here's the second question. What does the answer to question one say about your obedience to God's word? Like, are you someone who has simply heard the word of God and stopped there? Or are you the person who's heard... And then started doing what the Bible says to do. Here's my encouragement. Look, if you're a doer in the room, keep doing what you're doing. Simple. Every day, get out of bed and do more of what you're doing. And don't forget, as Paul teaches in Galatians 6, 9, that you should never grow weary in doing good because one day your life on this earth is going to be over. And on that day, you're going to receive the eternal blessings that come from your obedience. And then secondly, look, if you're a hearer, in the room. If you know what you're supposed to do, but you're not doing it, here's my challenge. Start doing something with what you've heard. Don't continue to be like that man who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Until you put the word of God into practice, I promise you will miss out on the freedom and blessing that God wants to bring into your life. In closing, I'll say this. I know messages like today's, they can be hard, They can be difficult, they can be convicting, they can be challenging. Some of us might be thinking to ourselves right now, I just got beat up. Talked to a guy after last gathering, he said, man, it's it's good to be beat up at times, but I don't want you to leave beat up. I don't want you to leave discouraged. I don't want you to leave hopeless. I want you to leave encouraged and hopeful. And so let me encourage you in what's true. I want to remind you of what's true. Here, Here it is. That even though... You might be a person who's been getting this wrong. There's still grace and forgiveness waiting on you. Isn't that awesome? You might show up today as somebody who's just been defying God, disobedient, running in the opposite direction. You know everything you're supposed to be doing, and you're not doing any of it. Here's God's invitation. Just come on. Come on back. Come back. Come back. 
confess, repent, ask for forgiveness, and I will meet you where you are in my grace, in my mercy, in my love, and I will restore, I will cleanse, I will forgive. That's God's promise to you. You see, God is a good father who wants the best. God has no intention of beating us down and leaving us there. Again, he, he wants to hold this in front of us so he can remind us, uh, you need me, you're broken, there are areas of your life that need to be changed and you can't change them, but God can. And no matter how broken you may feel today, God can restore you. You see, your grace is not, or I'm sorry, your sin is not deeper than his grace and his power and ability to forgive you is greater than your disobedience. And so the simple invitation today is this, if you need to come back and repent and confess, if you need to move from hearer to doer, come back today. In just a moment, our prayer team's gonna be here and if we can pray with you or for you, uh, we would love to do that. As many of you did last week, uh, if you just wanna come and, and kneel at the front of the room and have someone pray over you, we'd love to do it. Maybe you're that person who's the complainer and I need to stop and I need somebody to pray for me. Husbands and wives, maybe you're struggling in your marriage and uh, you're doing all you can to just keep your heads above water and you know that that the first step is you need to come and just be prayed prayed over that God would do something in your life to restore you. I don't know what it is for you, but, but if we can serve you by praying, we want to do that, okay? So I'm going to ask us all just to cross the room, bow our heads, close our eyes. Prayer team, you can go ahead and just come and uh, get in your place at the front of the room. And for the rest of us, let me just pray for us. God, would you give us courage today? Would you humble us in this place? God, I, I'm sure that there are people in this room, God, who've heard a lot about what they should do, but they still haven't done it, God. Help them to believe today that, that you love them, that you're for them, that you want the best. Help them to trust you. And God, would you give them the faith and humility they need to confess their disobedience? to ask for forgiveness, to, to turn from their sin and to embrace the life that you have for them. And God, I'm praying that you'd meet these people, God, in grace and in compassion today, that you would restore, that you'd redeem, that you would heal, that today might be a defining moment in some of our lives, that we'd finally move from hearing to doing. God, our prayers that your Holy Spirit would just move in power in this place. God, that you would free people of, of things that they can't seem to get free from, that you'd restore broken marriages, that you would uh, heal hurting people. God, whatever you want to do, God, we give you this time. It is yours. God, I just also pray you make yourself known to people in this room who walked in without a relationship with you. God, help them to see today that freedom and blessing cannot be found outside of Jesus Christ. And God, would you give them the faith they need to put their faith in him as Savior and Lord. God, work and move in our lives. Do things in the next few moments that only you can do. God, we trust you, we love you, and we thank you for your great love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.